Hello and welcome to Xlander, a podcast about and for all of you who have left their home to find a new one abroad. I must say that it had taken me quite some time to think about how to introduce my next guest, Francis Tapon. It doesn't happen every day to be speaking to someone who has visited every single country in Africa or hiked the Appalachian Trail multiple times. He's quite a special guest because he's not exactly an expat. However, he has lived outside his home country for many, many years. He's an author, podcaster, nomad, full of amazing stories. And as someone nicely put it in a book review, a modern-day Marco Polo. Though, unlike Marco Polo, he has taken a nude sauna with a gorgeous Finnish woman. So maybe even a little better than Marco Polo. Plus, I don't know how about you, but I really haven't met anyone yet who'd live in places like Benin or Niger. So have a listen, whenever and wherever you're listening to Axlander, and enjoy. So today I'm talking to a special guest, Francis Tapon, who is now in San Francisco, California. He's an author of many books. Among those are The Hidden Europe and Unseen Africa. He's a podcaster. He has his own podcast, Wanderlearn, and I am very honored that he has agreed to be on Axlander. So well, welcome, Francis. How are you? Thank you, Eva. This is a great honor, and uh, I'm going to be your first unspecial guest. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Because everybody's a special guest, I want to be the unspecial guest. Good. Well, then, you know, Francis, what an honor to have an unspecial guest, <laughs> a, a nomad and a, and a very special person, in my view, to have you on Axlander. This episode is called Over to You, and uh, I basically would like to know more about you. I already know quite a lot, but uh, this is a platform for yourself to, you know, introduce yourself then to our listeners and to talk about your amazing life. Uh, and a truly amazing story of traveling the world and hiking the world as well. So over to you, Francis. Well, I don't know exactly where to start, but the easiest thing to say is that I was kind of a product of a Chilean mother from Santiago, Chile, and a French father. And they met in San Francisco. So I was born in San Francisco. I went to a French school in San Francisco. So I was kind of had a speaking Spanish at home, speaking French at school and speaking English the rest of the time. And I think that kind of influenced my worldview. And for your expat-focused audience, you know, that's something I think they can all relate to is kind of like I was a global citizen before that became a thing. Right. <laughs> I was kind of born into it. And it's just complete luck. It was just a genetic lottery, that's all. Yeah, so you were already born with that international background and that's, you got it for free, basically. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, and I think people, let's say you live in Switzerland. I mean, I think the Swiss also take for granted the fact that they live in such a multilingual society and that they are easily able to pick up three languages. No big deal. I mean, it's quite common. Sometimes people speak four or five languages. And in most of the world, that's not that common. And that's pretty lucky. There's a lot of people who are bilingual, but trilingual is rare. And Switzerland, you're, if, you're, if you're born and raised in Switzerland, you're blessed with that possibility. Well, it depends actually in what cantons you live as well. And, you know, usually the people, let's say, in the French-speaking cantons, they would have a better level of German than Swiss in the German cantons would have a level of French. But, yeah, I mean, that's what they learn at school. And, and basically it's given... They, some, some of them take it for granted, I would say. But you are trilingual, right? This is your background. 
Yeah, I'm trialing. And so, and then as any expat should probably know as well, is that once you are fluent in an extra language or two, each language becomes progressively easier to learn Mm -hmm. because you can make associations and connections. Like, for example, Portuguese and Italian are, you know, I can can capture a lot of it, maybe 25 to 50 percent of it I can understand just because of my other two, you know, romance languages. Mm -hmm. So... Um, if you know Swiss German, you're going to learn German quite easily, you know, things like that. <laughs> so it, it, they build on each other. So that's just another advantage of having multiple languages under your belt. Okay, but then where do we start with your story? So you were born to a Chilean mother and a French father. And what happens next? Um, so I was raised in San Francisco. And I, you know, so again, one of these things, I think, again, relating to expats, you don't realize how great your city is or how bad it is until you leave it and I just was raised in San Francisco I thought oh this is just a city and it was only until I drove across America to go to college in Massachusetts that I realized huh my my city is actually kind of cool and I think the same thing happens for a lot of expats let's say they are I don't know they're raised in Paris and then they they go and then they all of a sudden they appreciate maybe what a baguette is you know like my god I didn't realize how important a baguette was until I left France (laughs) for example Um, or whatever it is oftentimes it's food for expats expats have a very strong affinity to their food Um, and and so I think that's another thing that can happen is that by leaving your place you appreciate your place and that's exactly what you did i mean when did you start with your traveling adventures and moving abroad when did you think about it because americans they have this there is the stereotype of americans having this dream of living in europe or like you know uh settling in europe for some time but then they don't really travel that much as europeans do i would say from my experience so what sort of kept you going there? So I wrote an article called Defending American Ignorance. And I, <laughs> if you search, just Google the word, you'll see it in the top 10 of Google. Uh, or just, you know, American Ignorance. It will be in the top 10 of Google. And I kind of push back on that notion that Americans don't travel much. Because you're right, it is a stereotype. Um, but what I would say is that they don't travel. They travel a lot as far as kilometers from their mm-hmm. home just as much as a European probably. I don't know this for a fact, but but because the United States is practically the size of Europe, they mm. haven't even left their fucking... <laughs> <laughs> it's they, okay, say it. They haven't left their country yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, to me, uh, versus a European, you know, they walk down the block and they're in another country. <laughs> Right, that's true. (laughs) And so as a result, they feel more traveled. And of course, you travel a thousand kilometers in Europe or even a hundred kilometers in Europe, the culture, the setting, the language, so many things change dramatically versus a thousand kilometers in America, very little changes. And so, Mm -hmm. um, so when you say that Americans don't travel a lot, there's some truth to that as far as number of countries that they visit. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Back, by the way, and here's another thing, uh, since you're relatively young, there's, you know, people may not remember that before 9-11, September 11, 2001, Americans could travel to the Caribbean, Canada, and Mexico mm-hmm. with their driver's license. Right. They didn't need a passport. They did not need a passport. So, and getting a passport is a pain in the butt. So, if you had this, just a driver's license, which every American has, 
You can go to Canada, the Caribbean, Mexico. I mean, that's a lot of, and that's very far from most American cities, or let alone Hawaii and Alaska. So you right. can actually travel a vast distance, 5,000 kilometers, and still basically go nowhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, versus a European, uh, back before the EU, you need a passport mm -hmm. to go 100 kilometers. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's true. You couldn't leave, you couldn't go anywhere without your passport. So, and once you have your passport, then all of a sudden, why not go to Thailand? Why not go to mm -hmm. South America? Because I've got my passport now. But Americans are like, oh, then I got to go get my passport if I want to go to Chile or whatever, right? So mm -hmm. these are factors I think Europeans don't think about. Don't get, yeah, yeah. yeah. But back to your story. So um, I got my passport when I was practically born because <laughs> we went to Paris okay. um, and went to visit my, I don't even remember going to France to visit my relatives. I don't remember going to Chile when I was that young. I was a baby basically, um, but I went to Chile multiple times. And I first got inspired, I suppose, to really start traveling like a nut after I walked across the Appalachian Trail. So the Appalachian Trail is about 3,000 kilometers. It goes on the East Coast of the United States. It goes through 14 states. And it's, it takes typically four or five months or so to walk. And when I did that, I had a lot of time to contemplate and think about my life. And at that time, I was about mm -hmm. 30 years old. And I realized, you know, what if I had a billion dollars? If I had a billion dollars, what would I, how would I spend my time? And I realized if I had that much money, I would just be vagabonding around the world. So then I thought, okay, well, if that's what I would do with a billion dollars, why do I have to make a billion dollars? Because it doesn't cost a billion dollars to do just that. It costs a lot less. <laughs> and so I'm like, why don't I restructure my life in order to do that? So why, instead of working like crazy, you know, I went to Harvard Business School where you can, you know, with an MBA from there, you can work like crazy and make a lot of money. I'm like, and then what? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then what? <laughs> and then the corporate life and climbing up right. the corporate ladder. Was that no nothing that was appealing? It to was you? appealing and it still is appealing, but travel is just more appealing. That's all. You know, in other words, I, I love Silicon Valley. I love technology. I just wish I could have two lives. You know, I wish I could have an ability to have <laughs> live in a parallel universe and, and pursue this dream of doing a startup in Silicon Valley and, you know, building a company and watching it grow and all the excitement that comes with that, going public and who knows what. That's fun. But visiting, I don't know, Cambodia and Kazakhstan is more fun to me. You know, so in the end, I you got to pick with what is where your heart is most most thrilled about because that's in the end you don't know when you're gonna die. So, and I, I remind myself that every day. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. So, how did you how did you start then? What was your goal? I mean, where did you just put a finger on the map and say, okay, well, I'm going to start in Paris, or I'm going to start in Asia, or I'm going to Africa, or what was the what was the original start then after this hike, the Appalachian Mountains? So I thought of, first of all, I want to hike the other two long trails. So America has three major long popular trails. They call Triple Crown. It's the Appalachian Trail, mm -hmm. the Pacific Crest Trail, and the Continental Divide Trail. So I want to do all three mm -hmm. of those. So that was part of the thing that was on my agenda. The other thing was that I want to uh, see all the countries of the world. And I think at that point, at 30 years old, I had maybe been to, I don't know, 30 countries or something like that. I can't remember. But mm -hmm. I looked at the map and I said, okay, what place do I really not know yet? But I kind of know. And that's Eastern Europe. 
And so I decided, okay, why don't I really get to know Eastern Europe well? So I spent three and a half years traveling through Eastern Europe and writing my book, The Hidden Europe, about that. And so that was the first thing. And then I thought, after I finished that, I was like, okay, I'm getting older. It's going to be harder and harder to travel to places that are uncomfortable and challenging. So why don't I get those places, quote unquote, out of the way first? If my goal is to travel to all the countries. So that's when I decided I'd never been to Africa. I was an Africa virgin. And I decided, why not just go to Africa and spend five years traveling to all 54 African countries, spending about five weeks in each country, and do that when you're still vibrant enough and strong enough in your 40s or something to, in order to pull that off. And then after that, mm -hmm. I want to do the Middle East and then East Asia and then the Pacific Islands, Oceania. And, and then there's a smattering of South American countries and Caribbean countries I would need to do at that point. So that's the overall plan. And that's where I'm going. Wow. In my previous episode, I was uh, talking to a Malaysian entrepreneur who lives in Switzerland now, and she set for herself the travel goal of visiting 100 countries before hitting 30. And she's managed 108 countries, and she's my age, 34 now. She's got three little boys. I don't know how she does that, but it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing. It's an amazing episode. Now, how many countries have you been to then? About 123. 123? Yeah. And multiple times in certain countries, right? Oh, yes. Multiple times. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Um, and, okay. And so, I'm nowhere near this. Nowhere near this. Oh, that's okay. But I'm older than you too. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm so, traveling, but yeah. Yeah. But I, I do think it's, it's always a, a challenge and a dilemma, I think, for all people who are travelers to, to whether you want to do, uh, see a lot of countries or spend little time, sorry, more time in a few countries. So now most people who are, let's say, fans of you and listening to our expats, expats in general subscribe to the notion of spending more quote-unquote quality time in one or two countries as opposed to just like spending a, a week or even two days in Dubai or whatever and just running around like an idiot. So um, there's no right answer and everybody has to decide for themselves. They each have their pros and cons. I try to take a hybrid method. I mean five weeks in each African country is kind of like it's not super fast, but it's also not the expat existence either, mm -hmm. where you're kind of really living among the people. Although but I you were also living, sorry, you were living in Niger, right? Yeah, so in Niger, I spent about four months in Niger. I spent about four months in Cameroon. I spent three months in Benin. So in some ways, I had glimpses of the expat life, if you will. I spent several months in South Africa and Lesotho. You can count that as like four or five months or so. So mm -hmm. there were moments. And then certain countries, let's say like Togo, I only spent like 10 days or less, I think mm -hmm. about a week. Um, so that was like the shortest periods of time that I went to places. But anyway, so I, had, I, I fully understand the dilemma between balancing your depth versus breadth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that lots of people uh, who are listening and also people who have this background or people who are married to an expert or who, who have a friend as an expert, they usually understand the struggle that you have because you are the outsider, right? Like you are the, it's, it's like, it's great. It's all exciting. It's awesome. It's, it's, it's this great life that everybody back home sort of pictures you that you, you're having, right? But then these are all these struggles with the normal life that you somehow 
after a few months or after a few years, you no longer have this great sort of traveling, experiencing the new thing experience, right? If you know what I mean. Like you somehow in this normal daily life, you need to go about your day and you need to deal with this everyday business. And you're far away from home and it's no longer that exciting. And I think that many expats don't know how to deal with this because it's a completely natural process it's not it's not people being picky or you know people being you know complaining but it's just you move to a certain country for whatever reason and then you go like oh this is great and i'm going to explore every inch of this little mountain and this little lake and you know you've seen it all but then you know you need to go about your day you need to go to work you need to pay your bills and so on and this is just all they're thinking it's actually refreshing you know when you get to travel again right suddenly that place is no longer that exciting. And you even start seeing like the negative things. And that's a whole other story, you know, whether you're allowed or you're not allowed, you know, if you're an expat, been living there for a few years, yeah, can you like criticize certain things? Shall you, shall you not, perhaps not? Well, you know, that depends. But I think it's very refreshing then to have this perspective from someone who is is not a traveler, but who is a wanderer, let's say, or an adventurer who'd like to, who, who, who likes to travel the world and experience it, but also, as you say, not only for a few days, but really living in that particular place for a few months, because that's also another experience. I mean, you did that in Europe as well, right? It was not right. only Africa that you lived in. Yeah, I lived in Croatia for about a year. I lived in Slovenia for about six months, and then other and. Uh, other countries, uh, I lived for several, you know, I was there for several weeks in certain countries. So 25 Eastern European countries, because I define Eastern Europe very, very broadly. Mm -hmm. But overall, um, it was, oh, again, a kind of a blend. And yeah, there's, it's, it's, it's fun. I mean, I just, I just, in, and there's also certain societies, kind of what you alluded to, uh, Eva, that certain societies are more accepting of expats than others. So some certain societies are more quick to assimilate them and to kind of accept them. I I remember now again, this is self-serving perhaps, but I remember you know one foreign you know one person saying like in America after one year of living here you're an American, <laughs> versus versus you know let's say you could live forty years in Japan but you're not Japanese unless you were born in Japan, you know, things like that. Again, I don't know if these stereotypes are fair, but certainly the idea is correct, which is there are certain societies that accept and assimilate expats much more readily than others. And have you ever thought of settling elsewhere than going back home? Because you are back now in California, I mean, after your travels. I mean, you still travel, but was it always clear to you that this is what I'm doing? I'm traveling, but I'm always coming back. Or did you think as well, well, what if I what if I relocate somewhere? And what if I, you know, you said you were living in Croatia for a year. So something obviously kept you there. Yeah, yeah I was writing my book on Eastern Europe. And so that's why I ended up spending that much time there. Mm -hmm. Um I have no problems uh, relocating somewhere else if I hit the place. I almost bought a house in Kotor, Montenegro, which is my favorite okay. part of Eastern nice. Europe. Have you, have you been to Kotor? No, not yet. I mean, I would like to go. It's on my list. All the listeners here, they should go to Kotor, Montenegro. Uh, okay. It's just a fabulous place. Just south of Dubrovnik, about two hours on a bus. It's just spectacular. Anyway, so I nearly bought a house there. And so I almost relocated in that sense. And I may still mm -hmm. do so, relocate somewhere foreigner. I have no idea, but I don't have, I mean, my mom is still alive. And so there's that mm -hmm. that keeps me coming back. Maybe after she dies, then maybe I, I just won't feel 
this need to come back to California anymore. So I may not. And yeah, I, I've, I just enjoy moving. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, and we like love stories on Xlender. We've had several, you know, in these interviews. You've got also one uh, spectacular love story with your wife, who is originally from Cameroon. Yes, that's right. Can you tell us a bit more about it? Because she's an expat and she relocated then for you, I mean, to California. So, yeah, how did that happen? I mean, you met her on your travels or? Yeah, so I met her on an app called Badu, which is kind of like a dating app in Cameroon. And she and I met, we hit it off. We, I said, okay, well, how about we go travel to Ni uh, Nigeria together? We traveled to Central African Republic together and uh, climbed the tallest mountain of the Republic of Congo. Oh, and these are all really kind of challenging places to travel to. And I want to see how she would handle it. And she did super well. And so when we, I invited her to come out to Zambia, that's where I proposed to her. And that's where we got married by Livingston Falls. And then she and I traveled together to about 30 African countries. Mm -hmm. And so about half of Africa, I've traveled alone and half of it, roughly, I traveled with her. And during that time when we were traveling, we, were, we had submitted the, the papers for her to get a green card, which is a permanent residency visa to the United States after two years of, of waiting. And we were traveling, so we weren't really wasting any time. She got the, the visa. And so she, she got her green card and her permanent resident visa before ever leaving the continent of Africa. Wow. And then we went, spent, uh, uh, we went to, I think, five European countries before coming to the United States so she could get a flavor of Europe. We went to mostly Western European countries. I think Spain, uh, Switzerland, and France, and maybe uh, Italy as well. So, and then we came to the United States. We took a train across America. And uh, yeah, so she's quickly integrated. And the big news for your people I haven't even announced this to anybody publicly so you guys will be the first to hear this is that she has enlisted in the United States Navy wow okay how did that come so she uh, there's a variety of things she wants to become a nurse and the Navy offered her a job as a nurse effectively it's not a nurse nurse but it's it's called a corpsman a corpsman is somebody who's kind of like a nurse assistant if you will uh, or combat medic mm -hmm. you know that's like think of a paramedic or whatever that kind of stuff so it's a very general role but it's medical related and she sees as an opportunity to really um give back to the country because so she is one of these expats who immediately felt grateful mm -hmm. for her the country that received her and sometimes that happens some people come to switzerland and all of a sudden they just fall in love with switzerland and they're grateful for the swiss for letting them come there and they want to give back to switzerland and and be grateful and somehow and, and and one way to repay that yeah and there are others there are others who'd you know complain and right. this is not good and that's not good enough right. and yeah that happens of course right 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 <laughs> They're everywhere, yeah. Right. But I think um, there's a lot of people who come to the United States with very little, like Rejoice did, and quickly realized how the benefits of the society that we have in the United States, despite all the criticisms that are lobbied against us, that there's mm -hmm. some huge benefits, especially especially when you come from the Sahara. So she came from the Sahara and very impoverished. She didn't grow up with electricity or running water. Um, and she lived a very humble existence in that sense. And so going from that to United States and realizing, you know, in Africa, a lot of people who are smart, hardworking, don't have a whole lot of opportunity. And the United States, or I think 
a lot of high-income countries, including Europe, uh, European countries, people underestimate how easy it is to find a job. And people, Europeans will complain, oh, it's so hard to find a job. No, it's not. Go to Africa and try to find a job. It is much. There you have to pay to get a job. Even in Eastern Europe, I remember talking to some people in the Balkans. In order to get your first job in many Balkan countries like Serbia, um, Bosnia, you have to pay to get that job. You have to pay like $5,000 or $10,000. In Africa, you have to pay to be an apprentice. So the idea of getting an internship in America, internships are often paid, usually paid. Sometimes they're not. But in Africa, if you, let's say you want to be a hairdresser, you have to pay to the hairdressing salon in order to be in order to quote unquote work for them. I mean, you're doing work for them and you have to pay. And in some ways it's revolting. You know, the logic, it's like we bristle at hearing that. But then I started thinking about it. I was like, okay, well, wait a second. How's that different than let's say university? You pay to go to university. And so in sense that going to a hair salon and paying them, it's kind of like you're, you're paying for an education to learn how to get practical hands-on knowledge of how to do somebody's hair. So mm. I can kind of understand the logic, but still, my point is, is that unless your parents are very wealthy, it's hard to get a job in many societies in the world. And that's not so in the United States and many high income, high income countries, which is, by the way, why so many expats flock to those countries. Why do they go to Dubai? Because it's, you know, why do you see so many Indians uh, going to Dubai? <laughs> it's because it's a lot easier to get a job there and a high paying job and a good one, even if it's, quote unquote, a bad job. <laughs> Uh, just like cleaning mm -hmm. dishes, it's still better than what you could get back home and for many people. Yeah, that is true. Was this one of the, I mean, just listening to this, was this one of the, one of the inspirations and one of the goals that you set yourself for writing Unseen Africa? Not only to give your experience to your viewers and readers, but also to tell people, look guys, I mean, we're actually having great lives here. And even if, you know, there is poverty and there are other problems we are so privileged in our part of the world. Was this one of the ideas that you had in mind when writing the book? Not directly, but absolutely you're right that I hope that gratitude is one of the things that is in short supply and we need to have much more of it. And I hope that in reading about Africa, people will understand how privileged they all are. And that's something I brought up about the Black, and for example, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, people talk about white privilege. I'm like, listen, there's black privilege. If you're a black person in America, you're a lot more privileged than a black person in Africa. <laughs> you're doing a lot better. And so sometimes we, we forget it. We're so in America, we're so racially focused that we, we lack a global perspective on like, Hey, you know, I think any African who would love to switch roles with any African American or black person in America, it's, and we forget about that because we're, we have this kind of myopic view of the of the universe. I think the problem is, I mean, and I don't want to get too political, but it is, uh, it's, it's a thorny issue. Uh, but I think the problem is that at the moment or currently we're trying to portray, let's say, the West as our society, like the worst place on our planet, right? Like, you know, it's the worst place to be and it's the most polluted it, the human rights and, you know, like, and women's rights and so on. I was like, well, hi, I mean, you've got all your rights and you're living in like the most developed part of the world. But this is perhaps some, some listeners won't agree or will disagree with this statement. But I'm thinking, yes, gratitude is something that we should, we should practice a bit more. We've forgotten very quickly. You don't need much, right, to be, to be 
happy? Like, do you really need all that money or that corporate life? Like, you're a living example of that. Right. And, and Africans also can teach you that because if you look at the state of happiness in Africa, I would say in general, uh, Africans tend to be happier than many Europeans. Europeans are kind of a morose, uh, <laughs> grumpy people. I, I'm of talking course. in general, especially Eastern Europeans. <laughs> but, you know, Europeans, more than any other, more than any other continent, Europeans love to complain. And, and bitch and moan about things not working, not being perfect. It's incredible how negative uh, Europeans can be um, compared to other continents. And so if you look at, uh, yeah, anyway, so that, enough said about that. But, um, and, and so again, fostering that gratitude. I, what I like to do is also compare things on a timeline. In other words, if you look at a poor person in Czechia or a poor person in the United States, they are richer than a European king was in the Middle Ages, in many respects. Right. Think about it. Yeah. You can get a papaya. A king in the Middle Ages didn't even know what a papaya was or a mango. They didn't. They couldn't. And, and you can get it in the middle of winter. You can buy grapes in the middle of winter. You can get all sorts of fruits in the middle of winter because they're imported all the way from the southern hemisphere and brought to you. And uh, you can. The king didn't have a cell phone. The poorest person in Europe, even in Africa, they have a billion cell phones in Africa. So even there. But I think the problem in Africa is that there are lots of there are lots of cell phones, but there is no clean water. That's the problem. Yeah, sure. No, but that's Isn't because it? that's yeah? that, that's exactly the paradox of yeah you know today's world. Yeah. Yeah, but I would say most Africans have clean. I mean, if if they didn't have clean water, they would be dying. But it comes yeah. down to what a lot of things about what Africans value. Um, so first of all, they, most Africans, I would say, I don't know what percentage, but a high, vast majority of Africans have clean water. If they didn't, they'd all be dead. So you have to have clean water. Even in the poorest villages, they find ways. They'll boil the water. They they're not stupid. They're not going to go to sewage and just drink the the water in the sewer. Mm -hmm. they, they're, they're, they're smart. They realize there's wells and that kind of stuff. Yes, there's a lot of water that should be treated better. Yes, most African cities, if you turn the tap, you probably shouldn't drink the water. But I lived in Niger, which is one of the poorer countries. I was in Niamey, the capital. And for four months I was there, I drank tap water. Nothing ever happened to me. I didn't even have diarrhea. So the there is, but that was the capital. And so maybe if I had gone to the, you know, I, I probably wouldn't drink the, but anyway, it's not as bad as sometimes you look on the media and it sounds like Africans are all walking five kilometers in order to get water and put it on their head and, and it's crappy water and they're all getting Jardia every day. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. not that doom and gloom. It's better than that. But there is problems. And the other thing is that uh, Africans as a society, like every society, has priorities and they prioritize cell phones for whatever reason. To me, it's the, the invention that the rest of the world made that Africans assimilated and acquired faster than any other invention that was offered to them. And they mm -hmm. just, they love it because they love, they're very social people and they're very communicative. So I think that's why it was. So that would be Unseen Africa. Uh, what about going then back to your travels around Eastern Europe and however, you know, politically, geographically, it's a region that often gets lumped together. So let's say Central or Eastern or Southern Europe. How, how did you come up with this as well? Because I guess those days when you tr when you started to travel, it was not a... It was not exactly the top destinations that Americans would go to, right? Right, like you know, That's Americans why... would go like to Paris, London, right. and that would be that would be it. 
Right, and that's why I called the book The Hidden Europe, what Eastern Europeans can teach us, because when Americans, just as you rightfully say, whenever they talk about Europe, they're always talking about Western Europe, Italy, Spain, France, uh, Germany, Switzerland, even Norway or whatever, or UK certainly. That's Europe. And somewhere around Czechia, did <laughs> the notion of Europe start to evaporate? <laughs> and, and yeah, you know, like that's not included in it. So it's all Russia, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> so, so yeah, um, I felt it was hidden, and to some extent, it still is largely. Um, a lot of people don't know about Moldova. People are not that keen, even though the, Romania has been over a decade in the EU. I don't think a lot of people visit Romania, even though it's a beautiful country and a uh, fascinating place. Especially to hike. Yeah, especially to hike, yeah, in the Transylvania Alps. So in some ways, it still is somewhat hidden and uh, misunderstood. And I think a lot of people uh, are finally having the courage to visit the Balkans, and the Balkans is its own place. So, yeah, I, I think uh, those are regions that are, are, are absolutely fascinating. And I would love to go back there at some point. <laughs> I just want to see the other countries first. <laughs> Yeah, you nearly settled in Montenegro, that's what you said. But was there something on your travels when we think about Africa and uh, and Eastern Europe and Europe in general, then what bothered you or what you didn't like or what you felt like, ah, oh, you know, like I'm really looking forward to like pack my bags and leave and, and just go to another country. I, I don't want to be doing this anymore. D did, you, did you have that moment or did you have those thoughts? You mean ever or just? I would say perhaps particularly traveling in Africa because it's it's a different world really, you know, it's different than when you travel in Europe and yeah, even Eastern Europe. Absolutely. So, absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. It's, it's a whole nother world. Africa can be very exhausting. Uh, the things that are most exhausting about it are the visas, the border crossings, um, getting visas to, to go from one country to the other. Um, it's getting better, but it's uh, tedious. What can also be Africa, there's uh, can be difficult about Africa, is that there are certain countries in Africa, especially, let's say, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Mm -hmm. and a few other places where Africans are constantly asking you for money. You're the white guy. Give me money. Help me. You know, da-da-da. Be my friend. Give me money. And it's just exhausting. Mm -hmm. And so it's if you ever want to be a celebrity, if you ever want to know what it's like to be Brad Pitt, <laughs> go to Africa <laughs> if you're white, assuming. Right. Um, and and you will, and especially part, you know, don't go to the touristic parts of Africa where they, but, but even there, I mean, even in touristic parts, even if you go to Kenya or South or Tanzania, but if you go to, let's say, Sierra Leone as a white person, woo, you're going to feel like a celebrity and you're going to realize all of a sudden you're going to have great sympathy for these poor celebrities where they're recognized everywhere you go. Everybody notices you. Everybody pays attention to you. Everybody wants to be your friend and, and often for the wrong reasons, you know, they're there just to, so that part I would say is the the parts about Africa that are challenging and difficult, but they come with great benefits. I mean, I could walk into, let's say, a five-star hotel that I was not, you know, paying for. I could just walk into the front door. Now, a black person in Africa wouldn't. They would they would stop you and say, "Are you a guest here?" and they wouldn't let you in. And that is in in a, in a way it is fascinating, but also terrible. Of course, yeah. When you think about yeah. it, I mean, that's 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 really I'll give you I'll give really you my bad. favorite story uh not, maybe not my favorite but it's uh, rejoice my wife uh was trying to go to get a visa for Tanzania and she was in Kenya at the time or Ethiopia no I think it was Ethiopia and we went to the embassy of Tanzania and she has her Cameroonian passport so she's a African <laughs> and 
she went up to, and she was spending so much time, like they were bombarding her with a bunch of questions at the embassy of Tanzania. You know, why are you going? What are you doing? And so finally, I was just sitting down in the waiting room. And then finally, I just walked up and I was like, hey, how's it going, honey? And then the guy who was peppering my wife with questions said, who is this guy? And she said, that's my husband. She says, okay, pick up your visa on Thursday. Yeah. The questions suddenly ended. Bam. (laughs) And constantly I could get rejoice into countries like in Tunisia. She would have never, ever gotten a visa from Tunisia if I had not been there. Now, some people Uh. could wonder whether it's because of my white skin or because of my passport or both. But there's definitely um, that issue in Africa for sure. This is what I wanted to ask, because how was it for her to travel across Africa as an African? Uh, and of course, Africa is just so is full of so many cultures and languages and, and, and tribes and so on. What was was it the first time that she ever traveled elsewhere outside of Cameroon than with you? Well, she lived in a part of Cameroon. If you look at a map on Cameroon, the northern tip is where she's from. And so the northern tip shares uh, it's very close to Nigeria where actually she spent half of her life. And it's Mm -hmm. very close to Chad, where her grandmother is from, or lives, should I say. And so those three countries, Chad, Cameroon, and Nigeria, were countries she was familiar with. But they're all part of the Sahel. That's all part of where Boko Haram kind of is. It's a similar culture that pervades there. And she didn't really know much about the rest of Cameroon even, let alone the rest of Africa. So... Uh, she found it uh, fascinating to see how much, I found it very interesting how much they have in common, the Africans. Mm-hmm. You know, I expected to be, I had, I guess, high expectations thinking that there was going to be way more diversity than I encountered. So, and again, that's just a question of diversity. If you think there's an African language and everybody looks the same, then you're going to be surprised by, wow, there's a lot more diversity than I expected. I didn't realize that there's Mm -hmm. hundreds of languages, (laughs) for example, because your expectations are so low. But if you come in with expectations thinking that there might be societies that are matriarchal versus patriarchal, you're going to be wrong. And you'll find out, no, it's almost all patriarchal. If you're going to think there's societies that highly value science, no, you're going to be wrong because they're, in general, societies are more religious and and spiritual and they believe uh, have uh, they don't have this Greek push to like that you might see in East Asian societies where people have to you know go on math and science and stem and all that kind of stuff um, if you think that uh, people where where it's where there are meritocracies there are very few meritocracies in Africa that's almost all about who you know what you know and family lineage and all that kind of stuff so these are all common themes that you'll run into. If you if you think there's honest cops, they're very, very few everywhere on the... You know, it just goes on and on about the, the commonness that I was surprised to... I was expecting to find a little bit more diversity. And there is some pockets of diversity, but just it's rare. It is amazing just hearing about this. I've never visited Africa I've uh, lived in the Middle East for some time, but uh, this is just definitely, I, w- I would love to go. I would love to go. And I don't know why I have this certain, perhaps it's a bit of a stereotype. I don't know, like traveling solo, I don't know whether I would feel safe or may- maybe I'm not the type for it. But definitely I would love to visit certain places in Africa. Well, traveling solo is, 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 is safe for a woman in general and all over Africa. I saw a few women doing that. The only downside is the main downside, should I say, is just that you're going to get marriage proposals every 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But have you ever thought of settling in any African country? Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. I'm sort of going back to, let's say, your wife's roots, I mean, where she stems from, is is this something that you were thinking about? Yeah, she and I talked. Can you imagine that? Yeah, we we talked about that um, multiple times because obviously the your your money stretches a lot farther. Let me ask you this, Eva. Guess how much, I was in Benin for three months, I mentioned to you. Guess how much was my monthly rent? So let me describe what I was renting. I had two bedrooms, sorry, two two rooms, so a bedroom and a kind of like a very small living room. I had a place to take a shower, but I shared an outhouse with a group of people and I had to get water from a well, so I had no pipe water. And I had electricity, but the government only supplied electricity maybe a quarter of the time. But anyway, so those were the conditions. You know, pretty humble, but I had a bed. It was furnished. I had a table, I had a chair. Um, guess how much it cost per month? Uh, I don't know, a few dollars. Ten dollars. Oh my God. Per yeah, month. This is per month. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so for you expats out there, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want to no, see your dollar stretch, bring $120 and you could live in this town in Benin. By the way, it's not a village. I mean, it was like a 25,000 people. And I would now probably, maybe now it's $15 a month. They probably cost a little bit more. <laughs> but mm-hmm. the point is, is that your, your dollar can really stretch. So that's one of the huge benefits. And of course, you can, along with that, labor is so cheap that you can have an army of servants and people cooking for you and cleaning and doing everything for you. You can have a driver, you know, you can have, you can really live it up on a very modest amount of income. And so for expats who, let's say, have a fixed income, maybe they're getting a pension, they can really stretch their money very, very far. And there are certain countries in Africa that cost a little bit more, let's say like Namibia or Mauritius, but you still get, but you get some of the safety infrastructure, um, rule of law that come with those more expensive societies. So you can gamble and, and go to, well, it's not gambling, but it's, you can go to a, a more poor country, let's say like Benin or I don't know, Senegal, and still very safe. It's still very safe. But if you really want to have kind of like a hybrid of kind of certain amount of wealth, and development, then you can look at places like Namibia and Mauritius, for example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Namibia is a popular travel destination with lots of lots of Swiss, lots of Germans. Yes. Uh, yeah, I would lo- definitely love to go. Yeah, I think it's worth it. But yeah, I mean, as you were talking, th- there's expat life and expat life. I mean, there's le- expat life in the Middle East that I could see, yeah, with all the maids and all the drivers and so on. I'm not sure that, you know, I'm not this type of person. I like to really do my laundry and, you know, take care of myself, even if I have that. It's not that I would I would be like frugal, but I just feel it's a, it's, it's a weird concept. You know, I, I didn't grow up with um, maids and people doing stuff for me. But I think it is a very, it's a very common thing for um, social sort of stratification, right? Like for certain tier of that society in Africa as well to this is where, th- this, is, this is who you are. Like you have the social status and um, you want to show it also to the others, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, your wife, how long has she been living, has she been living in California now? It's going to be three years or two is it two years i guess it's it's been two, two years. years yeah so it's two years in july so i guess you were recording this in december so two and a half, two and a half years. years okay okay and and yeah but now she's going to be uh at the on january 26 2021 she's going to be going to navy boot camp in chicago and she'll be going under about a three month uh, oh, so she's going to be away then, then okay yeah 
and then she's going to go for five months of training for to become like a medical person and that will be in texas so she'll be living in san antonio and then at that point who knows where the navy will send her and then we'll we'll play that one by ear once we find out where she gets shipped off to and then and then you will follow perhaps right yeah 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 that's the that's the hope the expectation um and while she's getting all her training and i cannot be there because they don't even let you be there uh, the spouses are not allowed that's when i i figure okay well i'm going to use the first quarter first half of 2021 to travel myself and get get some of these countries done but the problem is it's still too, you know this whole covid situation has closed so many countries yeah and so africa is half of africa is open but i'm not sure i want to return there i a part of me wants to go to the middle east and start that trip what about asia have you traveled a lot in asia asia will come after the middle east no not really i've only been to like uh, three or four countries in asia i've been to japan three times to korea twice singapore uh, malaysia but that's about it so there's a lot of uh, Asian countries. I don't know. I don't know India or China, for God's sakes, even though I've been to 123 countries. Those are two enormous countries that I haven't been to. But I'm saving that for after the Middle East, kind of what yeah. I mentioned earlier. I want to get the quote unquote yeah. hard countries yeah. done first. And, you know, you can be old and, 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 and decrepit and travel through East Asia, no problem, because those societies are not that challenging. But going through Syria now or going to Iraq and uh, Afghanistan, I'd rather have a little bit more uh, strength and physical, mental, whatever, in order to endure whatever possibilities I may have to endure there. Not that it's, I'm not being dramatic, like, wow, wow I'm going into a war zone because yeah, yeah. I'm not doing that. But, you know, just just the headaches, the often bureaucratic headaches. And you have to have much more patience in these societies that are not accustomed to tourists. They don't have the infrastructure or the mentality, I suppose, to kind of expedite things. And so everything has to take a long time. There's a lot of paperwork and a lot of BS that goes on uh, traveling through those countries. But at the same time, that's what makes them so interesting and rewarding because you're one of the few people who actually go to Tajikistan. You know, who the hell goes there? Very few people go there. So that makes it interesting. What about the attitude? You mentioned that in Africa you felt a bit like, you know, being a celebrity. What about the attitude of certain people towards you as an American, as a white American with an American passport and an American accent? Did you also experience hate or some kind of dislike towards you representing something that is, you know, in their eyes that you'd be like the enemy? You know, there are certain there are certain countries, certain people who don't explicitly like the US. Have you ever experienced this? Um, no, I didn't. Um, I suppose that there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, number one, Africans, as I mentioned to get, uh, earlier, they have a tendency toward optimism and, and happiness versus Europeans who tend to be a little bit more critical and negative in comparison. And so second of all, Africans are very polite people. So even if they don't like you, they're still going to be very nice to you versus a European will be frowned, you know, especially an Eastern European, a Russian <laughs> who doesn't like you will let you yeah. know he doesn't like you. Yeah. They'll frown at you and they'll, they'll be, they'll be a jerk. Um, and you know, versus, uh, African, uh, whether it's from North Africa, whether it be from, um, Egypt or from, you know, if anybody doesn't like Americans in Africa, Africa, it's got to be the North Africans who are, tend to be Muslim. Uh, the people of Morocco or Tunisia, there you might find them, but you won't experience it because, again, uh, the culture of, since you lived in the Middle East, you know, there's, there's a lot of 
welcoming and hospitality and put a smile on your face, even if you don't really mean it. Again, contrasting that versus Eastern Europeans who don't smile unless they mean it. So there's a pro and con to both of those societies and, and the way they interact. And third of all, even if you look at surveys from, let's say, Gallup, um, the Africans tend to not have that negative feelings toward any other countries. So one of the fascinating things that I learned when I was doing my book on Eastern Europe, let's say I talked to, to Hungarians. Hungarians, I think, have about seven neighboring countries that touch their border. And I asked them, you know, like, what do you think of the Croatians? I don't like them. What about the Slovenians? I don't like them. What about the uh, Slovaks? Don't like them. <laughs> if you go to Greece, uh, the only ones that the, the, the Hungarians kind of like or tolerate are the Polish people, the Poles. If you go to Greece, what you know, they have three neighbors. Turkey, hate them. Albanians, hate them. North Macedonians, hate them. I mean, so in general, in Eastern Europe, uh, the people don't like their neighbors at all. You know, but they might have good feelings about people from Laos or Japan, but not their neighboring countries. And so there's a lot of rivalry, these ancient animosities that people, their grandparents have brainwash them. I don't know what it is. In Africa, I did the same experiment. I would go to, let's say, into, I don't know, Senegal and ask them, what do you think of the Mauritanians? Oh yeah, good people. Uh, what about the people in Guinea-Bissau? Oh yeah, they're fine too. What about Mali? Oh yeah, we like them. It's the attitude. It's the attitude. <laughs> and, and so in general, Africans, a lot of it's attitude. And, and part of it is also because Africa is so enormous. I mean, Europe, uh, just for God's sakes, all of Western Europe could fit into Algeria. Not kidding. All of Western Europe can fit in just Algeria. So, um, or, or the DRC. Western Europe in the DRC, that's just one country. Now, granted, a biggest one, one of the biggest countries. But the point is, is that the other thing, Africans don't have the means often to travel a thousand kilometers to visit their neighboring country. So they may not know much about it. But I think, like you said, you alluded to before, it's about attitude a lot. I ask them often, what do you guys think of Europeans? What do you think about Americans? What do you think about the Chinese? And the Chinese, I would say, was roughly 50-50. Um, I would say Europeans and Americans, maybe 70, 80% approval in general. Um, so this notion that they hate the Chinese or the Chinese are the post-colonialists invading uh, Africa. Africans have, you know, in general, I would say mixed feelings, if maybe slightly positive toward China. This not just goes on my anecdotal evidence, but also through survey data when people are surveyed on this on this issue. And I think a lot of Europeans uh, who, who kind of talk about the Chinese invading Africa and the post-colonialism are hypocrites because when I traveled to all 54 African countries overland for five years, I saw a lot more signs saying this road built by the European Union, this well made by the United States to USAID. Uh, there were a lot more signs, a lot of things were in English or in French and the Francophones and, you know, almost half the countries speak French in Africa and no, none of them speak Chinese for God's sakes. And there's almost no Chinese language schools or Mandarin language schools in Africa. And there's a lot more linguistic um, colonialism going on of the United of English and French in Africa or Portuguese for that matter or Arabic than there is of the Chinese language. So even though yes, the Chinese are making huge inroads into Africa, there's two things. Number one, it's still not as much as the foreign direct investment that the Europeans slash Americans make. And second uh, is that they're doing a lot of positive things. A lot of the uh, government buildings are built by the Chinese, a lot of the roads, the bridges, things like that. I saw them, you know, helping out and the laborers that are doing it are mostly Africans. So yes, the people wearing the hard hats and, the, you know, whatever are Chinese, but like 
90% of the people they're working or 99% of the people working are Africans. And so they're employing a lot of people. And again, we have this notion that it's, that this is being forced on them. Nobody's forcing. There's, the Chinese are not coming at gunpoint saying, you must let us build this road or else. No, you must give us your, your whatever, your precious metals in the, you know, with a gun in their hand. No, they're saying, this is the deal. We're going to build this road for you in exchange. Let us cut down your trees. And they're like, okay, that's, that's a fair market deal. <laughs> now, of course, the African leaders might pocket most of the money themselves and not share it with the country, but that's their problem. You know, it's not China's problem. And it, it's, or, you know, some people will say, no, Francis, you know, you shouldn't do business with such people. Okay, fine. But anyway, there's a lot of, uh, we talked earlier about this, you know, the self-hate that certain Europeans and high-income countries have, you know, like, oh, we suck, we're terrible, we're awful, we're bad countries. Um, I, I, I think that in general, we should be promoting trade and that's the way that Africa is going to get better. And by the way, the last thing I'll say is that Africa has been getting better. It's a lot better now than it ever has been in any other century before, and it will continue to get better just like the rest of the planet. So if I would sum up in one sentence, like, what do I see the future of Africa? Africa will continue to get better, mm -hmm. but it will continue to lag behind the rest of the world in this century as far as standard living and the metrics that we use to measure prosperity so is that good or bad i don't know <laughs> somebody's got to be a but i think having this perspective on africa from someone who has actually traveled to every single country of that continent and even lived in few of those countries it's just so much more valuable than just reading headlines from the media you know yeah, I would hope so. Yeah, certainly a different perspective. Because I think we all have this very, very narrow image of Africa as being, you know, first of all, we think about it as like one particular place and culture, but it's just so, it's so different. And uh, yeah, there's lots of, there's lots of diversity. And also economically, yeah, there are certain parts of Africa that are improving. And yeah, most of Africa is improving. We still see like tribal right, right, uh, right. folks yeah, yeah. living on trees, you know, like this is what we get to see and we, what, we, what we picture it. And I think that's very, very wrong. And yeah. Uh, yeah, we need more authors like you and we need more unseen Africa or revealed Africa as it yeah, really yeah. is, and you know, through the eyes of somebody who's seen the daily yeah. life. And it's, it's, I think expats should consider living in Africa because I remember one, I stayed with a friend of mine. She's an American, actually she's Australian and she lives in Nairobi for, I think $300,000. She could have a three bedroom high rise apartment with, you know, full luxury, five stars, stuff like that for $300,000. I mean, you couldn't get that in most high income countries in the world. And, and, and then you get paid an expat salary you can really make it happen. I mean, that, and to me, that's the sweet spot of being an expat. The sweet spot is getting paid a Swiss salary in a low-income country. <laughs> it's just a win-win. It is. But then I also feel like, uh, I don't know, but maybe this is me. I couldn't really enjoy all that money, you know, when I see that people are getting, you know, $15 a month. So I would, I, I myself would perhaps... Not like I, I don't want to be contributing to charity just to just to show that I'm contributing to charity, but perhaps I would like to try then to give jobs or, you know, like to do something 
That's when you hire your maids. That's why you hire your maids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or you, or you can, you can try to do something else because this is also, again, you know, this is the, this is so hard talking about privilege because at some point we are privileged with what we have in our part of the world, and if we, I think, if we show it too much down there in Africa, and people have like, maybe you disagree with me, and people have much less. Yeah, they might be happier, but at the same time, you know, I don't really want to be rubbing it into anybody's face. You know, like, look at me, like, I'm the white European, I have this great salary. And of course, it is a win-win situation. You also want to be contributing, like, you want to enjoy your life. I probably couldn't enjoy it every day when I see, okay, people have uh, much less than I do. But that's, yeah. it's, that's the perspective that everybody has, yeah, people have to decide for themselves. Yeah, no, I understand, 100%. Right. Is there any other book on the horizon or anything else? The, the Unseen Africa hasn't been done yet. I'm not still not finished with it. I'm still writing in. So people can go to patreon.com slash ftapon in order to get the book as I'm writing it. I release chapters as I'm doing it. I'm also rewriting my book on the hidden Europe. Uh, so I'm cutting it in half effectively in order to make it shorter. It was a 736-page book, and now I'm going to try to make it under less than 400 pages. It's getting translated into Mandarin, and so that's kind of the reason I'm updating it, updating the statistics and everything mm -hmm. And like it's available on it. Amazon? And uh, Yeah, yeah, it's available on Amazon. And then the other thing is that I want to then probably write my book on the Middle East. So I'm, I'm starting to have some soul-searching about that recently just because being an author sucks as far as pay as far as uh, money. And I always knew that. And I, did, I do it just because I enjoy writing. I enjoy sharing the stories and that kind of stuff. It's fun. But at the same time, I wonder in myself, like, okay, I spend more time writing my book than I do traveling. Is that right? Maybe I need to... There's other things I create. I create podcasts. I create uh, videos. Maybe I need to... Maybe I'll, maybe I'll go to the Middle East and not write a book about the Middle East. Maybe. Who knows? Um, maybe I'll just travel the rest of the world without writing any more books and maybe just do occasional blogs and stuff like that. I don't know. It's something I'm, I'm because I have this constant notion that I'm going to die in five years <laughs> or less. And okay. so I think about this thing and I'm like, okay, well, I may not have a whole lot of time left on this earth and I really want to like see the rest of the planet. And I've been to, was that 60, uh, two thirds of the country, uh, of the, of the world. I still want to see a third of the world left. So Maybe I should just get it done, <laughs> see the rest of the world, and then I can kind of relax and then either write books or do something else, maybe work, have a career, you know, go back into the corporate world or become an expat. Or you can com combine everything. I mean, you can be an expat and write your books. Or what about a travel vlog? Something like that would be interesting. I mean, you already have your own podcast, Wanderlearn. I mean, you can, you, that's also an idea yeah. of, you don't only talk about travel, do you talk about all sorts of things. Sure. No, that's right. And, and But again, uh, as you know, mm -hmm. podcasts don't pay much at all either. In other words, so it's it's very hard to make a living off YouTube or podcasts. It's a hobby or thing. Or writing books. These are very hyper-competitive mediums. Yes, there are a few people who have managed to make a living and even a good living off of it, but it's very, very, very hard. And so you obviously you do it, Eva, not because exactly. of the money you do it because you enjoy talking with people and interviewing them and and stuff like that and that's and that's the reason i do it as well but at the same time you have to think about you know your actual bread on the table and a place to live and that kind of stuff and and expenses and your future and your retirement etc so so anyway i'm just struggling with all these issues and having to 
think deeply about it. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> well, I wish you lots of luck, the best of luck that can be, because it is amazing. I hope that when is Unseen Africa uh, going to be published? When is it scheduled? Should be next year. Next year. Next so year. 2021. I am definitely <laughs> among the first ones who is going to like pre-order. I can pre-order uh, a copy there. Thank you. Perhaps also it would be great if if this could be put into like a film documentary or something like that. I mean, you've yes. you've done have, certain things, right? I have to do that. Yeah, so I did a pilot episode on Morocco and I, I want to do a documentary about the whole trip. I have the footage. I just need to edit it and that kind of stuff. That's, it, these are just humongous, humongous time-consuming projects. And uh, unfortunately, uh, I there's just one of me at this point. And I just don't want to like spend thousands of dollars to hire editors or hire people to make it all happen so in the end I'm, I'm doing it and that takes time it takes time it's not easy people consume content really quickly but they don't realize how much work there is to put into it like this podcast right now you know people can consume it in one hour but it's going to take you several hours to do you know editing and writing up the blurb yeah. and all this other stuff it, it does it does yeah. but yeah it is nice to be creative and it's nice to speak to people from all over the globe about their experiences it's just amazing i mean if i could i would travel the world but uh, i don't think that i'm ever going to hit that goal i mean i haven't set a goal for myself but i always like to travel to a new place so i'm not a person who would go to the same resort like five times you know in a row like i don't i don't really understand that concept yeah i like to have a relaxing type of holidays but i also like to get to know i mean i like to hike i like to get to know places mm. so it would always be a new country um okay well it would be lovely as well to speak to your wife one day uh, if she agrees and she she'd like that about her whole right. expat experience in the u.s but also about her background and life back in cameroon like that would be yes you don't really get to uh, speak to people about their life in Cameroon on a daily basis, at least here in Europe. Sure. So that would be great. And I'm sure that lots of people who are listening would love that episode as well. So yeah, I hope we'll be in touch. It's not the last time that we've been talking to each other. And unless you have anything else... I would encourage people to go to uh, look for TEDx and my name, Francis Tapon, on YouTube. I have three TEDx talks there. And the one about black sheep, uh, it's, it's about rejoice uh, my wife so um that in people want to tease her about her life it's fascinating so or any of my ted talks uh tedx talks it might be interesting for your viewers and go to wanderlearn.com uh to subscribe to the podcast as well as um my newsletter and all that good stuff and anywhere on social media you can find me it's just my first initial which is francis and my last name tap on that's it thank you so much eva for your uh, it's been a great time talking with you Thank you, Francis. I'm speechless, but this is what a podcaster shouldn't be. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much. This has been great. And uh, thank you for joining me on this podcast all the way from San Francisco. I mean, it's great, this technology, right? Isn't it? It's amazing. One more reason to be grateful. Yeah. Keep on traveling and keep up with the good work that you're doing and all the very best. Thank you very much, Francis. Bye. Thank you, Eva.